to Conscious Pathways, the podcast where we explore the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations. I'm your host, Brittany, and today I have a very special guest to share with you, Denisha Jones. Denisha is the Executive Director of Defending the Early Years, a national early childhood advocacy nonprofit organization. After earning her bachelor's degree in early childhood education from the University of the District of Columbia, Denisha worked as a kindergarten and preschool director and has spent the last 20 years in teacher education. She earned her PhD in curriculum and instruction from Indiana University in 2013. In 2018, she earned her Juris Doctorate from the David A. Clark School of Law at the University of the District of Columbia. She is a part-time faculty member in the Art of Teaching program at Sarah Lawrence College and the School of Education at Howard University. Tanisha is an education justice advocate and activist. In 2020, she became an administrator for Uniting to Save Our Schools, and she serves as the Assistant Executive Director for the Badass Teachers Association. In 2017, she served as a National Steering Committee for Black Lives Matter at School, and she is a true play advocate and completed the Anji Play Fellowship in 2019. Her research interests include organizing activist research projects that examine grassroots movements to achieve racial justice in education, documenting the value of play as a tool for liberation with an emphasis on global approaches to play, and working with parents and educators to foster positive racial, ethnic, and cultural identity development in the early years. Her first co-edited book, Black Lives Matter at School, An Uprising for Educational Justice, was published in December of 2020 by Haymarket Books. I am so honored to share this incredible conversation with you. Denisha's passion for educational justice was so inspiring and incredible to experience. It made me feel like I was back in college learning from really amazing professors. And every night I would come home and just feel so energized by the depth of the conversations that we had. And it felt so good to be in a space that reminded me of back in those days. Um, So if you're ready to feel inspired, then let's jump right into this episode. Hello and welcome to Conscious Pathways. Today I have Denisha Jones with me today. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you joining me. I feel like you are the most double hyphenated person that I've interviewed so far. Triple hyphenated. Like, I don't know how many hyphens you have at this point. (laughs) But it's amazing. Definitely a couple. Yes, the just goals one day, one day. Um, but I'm so excited to have you here. Um, you know, I have the book Black Lives Matter at school, and I've been just notating in it and just coming back to it so many times. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But first, can you tell me a little bit about your journey in education? Why education? And how did you kind of break into this field? Sure. So thanks again for having me. It's so great uh, to talk with you about all of this. Um, so it's really interesting. I love telling this story. I was, I go with 12, right? I was 12, grew up in New Jersey. We had a nice set of encyclopedias, which we worked, my mom worked really hard to get her poor children the sight of encyclopedias. And I being the nerd of the family, like read them nonstop. And so I was making this list because that's what 12 year old Virgos do. And I said, I had a list of the jobs, the careers I wanted. And I said, teacher, lawyer, doctor, writer. Um, And I thought in the most attainable, right? Like I knew that teaching required one degree, lawyer required 
required two. Mm-hmm. Doctor required a lot more time because that that medical degree took longer. And then writer, I was like, who's going to pay me to write, right? Like, so I just kind of like was like staring at this list. And so I settled on teacher because I thought it was the easiest to obtain right away. Um, growing up poor, the, the idea of being in school for 10 years and trying to make a living yes. just didn't seem realistic. Um, and I loved working with children. I was a babysitter my whole life. My, my mom let me teach my sisters. They hated me. And summer, I collected all of the worksheets. And then I would just run school at home for the summer. And so for the first three hours during the day, they had to suffer through me making them do work <laughs> because I was that person. Um, he just loved school at school at home. Um, my, I took childcare classes all through high school. And my senior year, I got to actually leave school early and go work in a first grade classroom mm-hmm. at the elementary school nearby. So I knew I liked teaching. Um, so I picked teaching, decided to go off um, to college eventually. It took a while, community college, community college, um, mm-hmm. till I finally um, completed my bachelor's degree in early childhood education from the University of the District of Columbia. And by then I was older, right? I wasn't even sure I wanted to teach because I, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't do the four years right away. And I kind of was like, I just want to run a childcare business. So like I started in my AA and my professor was like, no, you're intelligent. You should get a bachelor's degree. Like don't settle. And so I said, okay. And I did my student teaching. Um, and at the same time though, I started to get into research. All my professors saw that I had this inclination for research. Like they'd make us do research and I would, they say, you pick the toughest, most intense research articles and you really understand it. Like you should really think about research. And I think, well, you know, I, I don't know what that means. Um, but then I got involved in a program called the, the McNair Scholars Program. And so Ronald E. McNair was one of the astronauts who died in the Challenger crash in 1986. Mm-hmm. And they started a federally funded program for underrepresented students to get a doctorate degree. So you start as an undergrad and you do research and you and you start preparing that way. So I, I did that program while I was an undergrad. And my mentor is like, you really should go get a PhD. He's like, don't even get a master's, just go straight for a PhD. I'm like, why would I do that. I didn't even know what it meant, right? <laughs> but anyway, I, I graduated and I, I got into a college, but I deferred for a year because I was like, let me teach, right? I want to be a teacher. I should teach. Well, teaching kindergarten was by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And that is that is after passing the bar and writing a dissertation. It was very, very hard. That first year in Washington, D.C., I had 20, 23 kids in my class, and six of them should have probably been in a self-contained special education class, and I was a new teacher, and I didn't understand a lot of why kindergarten wasn't what it was like when I was in kindergarten, which I loved. I had this great teacher. We did wonderful things. It didn't feel that way. Um, so fortunately, I, I was prepared to, to go right into grad school because I had deferred for a year. So mm-hmm. um, I took off and went to work on a PhD, not knowing that numbered the doctor box. I was checking off that list, right? Because I didn't even know at the time that that was a thing. Um, so I went off and I, I, I am in this program in curriculum instruction and I don't even know what it's for. And then it dawned on me, oh, you're preparing me to be a college professor. Check. Got it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, do I want to do that? Fortunately, at Indiana University, I was allowed to teach um, undergrad courses in our early childhood program. And that's where I really found my niche. Like these young students were telling me how great my class was. It was so practical. I was giving them all the information that they needed to like apply in the classroom, Mm -hmm. to pass their licensure exams while other people were too theoretical Mm -hmm. or too practical and not enough of both. And they really appreciated that I could do both of those. I also was teaching young children. I was working in preschools as a assistant teacher um, Mm -hmm. while I was getting my PhD. So I was getting more experience teaching, but I really was kind of gravitating towards the college life. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and then I, I wrapped up my, well, I wrapped up my coursework. I, I, I officially graduated, but my diploma says another thing on it. I was ABD for quite a long time, but I, I took my first job at a, at a community college and I was um, uh, directing their, their preschool program and teaching. So in the college, so I got more experience and I was a preschool director and a college professor. And then I just decided to focus on the college, the professor, um, because I really enjoyed preparing the new teachers and trying to help them navigate a lot of the challenges I had in that first year of teaching. I was really starting to become awake to the issues of, of education, public education in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was joining groups um, like uh, Save Our Schools and now now Uniting to Save Our Schools. And, and I was starting to learn and understand why that first year of teaching was so hard. Yes. Um, DC was under a lot of issues with the new superintendent. Michelle Ree came in. There was a lot of teacher reform issues happening. And so it started to make sense, right? That there there were issues outside of my control that made teaching so difficult. And so I wanted to prepare other students to really understand what those issues were so that they, when they get into the classroom, they would be more grounded and able to stay and, and be committed to the classroom. Um, so yeah, I started working in higher education at Howard University. I, I taught there for many years. I still do as a part-time faculty. Um, I transitioned to other colleges, eventually moving to New York. I was the director of a teacher ed program in New York um, before I decided to work for this nonprofit that I work for now, defending the early years, and I, I work from home. Um, so it's been an interesting experience. And then in the middle of all that, as if I wasn't doing enough, I, I checked number three off that list, which was two at the time. And I went to law school when I was when I was teaching at Howard. Um, I decided to go to my undergrad alma mater, have a law school, and they had a part-time program for people who were working during the day. So I didn't have to quit my job. I was able to study the law and pretty much public interest law. And I really wanted to do policy work, which is what I do now for defending the early years. We're trying to influence policy um, around issues around early childhood education. Um, and so it's kind of nice to, to do that um, through this work now. So yeah, I've had a, a lot of different experiences that kind of led me here. Um, and then along the way, I was engaging, as I said, in different activist groups, um, United to Opt Out. We were promoting opt out, opting out against standardized testing, mm-hmm. um, the Badass Teachers Association, which I was there at the ground level, which was just teachers really trying to stop a lot of the things we were seeing around Common Core, testing, Teach for America, all of these things that were just really making it difficult for teachers to do their job and, and still are and right mm-hmm. to this day. Um, so that started around 2012. Um, defending the early years, the organization I work for now also started around 2012. So in 2011, there was this huge rally in Washington, D.C. called by Save Our Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when a lot of the groups that are now active all formed within the year after that. So mm-hmm. um, United to Uniting Opt Out, Badass Teachers, Defending the Early Years, Network for Public Education were all formed between 20, that summer of 2011 and 2013. Um, and so it was great to be a part of those groups um, and to to support them in different ways. And then in 2017, uh, 2017, uh, Black Lives Matter at school started to become a national organization. And I was able to be a part of that as it started to grow as well too, um, and then continue my work with them once I moved to New York and currently now as a member of the National Steering Committee and then also organizing locally with the teachers in New York City. So it's been a full round of, of, of things, but it's been, you know, it's, they're all connected to me in multiple, multiple ways. Yeah. Yes. I can definitely see that. And that is the most Virgo thing to just make a list. You're like, these are all the things I'd like to accomplish. 
Well, it's funny because I thought I had to pick one, but I love telling mm-hmm. kids the story because, you know, you talk yes. to young people and they're like, I want to be a veterinarian and a ballerina mm-hmm. and I'm a fashion designer. And we say, oh, just be one. And I'm like, no, yeah. actually, you don't have to just be one. I mean, yeah, yeah, my things are kind of connected in different ways, but you don't know what you might mm-hmm. end up doing, right? You might end up in a way, engaging in those fields in different ways. Maybe some are more volunteer that you mm-hmm. do as a, a passion that you love. And maybe some are careers that you switch, right? This yeah. idea that we have one career for 30, 40, 50 years of our lives, like that just mm-hmm. doesn't track for most people. It doesn't, it didn't track for me. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's a, it is a really neat opportunity to go back and look. And then, you know, once the book came out, I was like, mm-hmm. writer, check, right? I mean, like it's I an edited it. book. It doesn't feel the same, but I'm like, I've written a few yeah. articles. Too. Your name like, is on we'll, it? we'll get there. Yes. Yeah, my name's on it and it's it's published and it's published. I you know can do we'll do more. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's like yeah. That is amazing. And I feel like very similar to young me in that kind of sense. I, I think I wanted to be a teacher first and was told like you don't want to be a teacher, they don't make any money. They weren't wrong, but <laughs> they were not wrong. <laughs> they were not wrong. <laughs> Valid statement. But also When I did finally become a teacher, I was like, no, this is what I was meant to do. Like, my passion is here in education. Like, I was over here trying to do the most everywhere else. Um, But I was like, I'll be a teacher, and then I'll be a lawyer, and then I'll be a doctor. And I was like, I have to pick one of those. And, you know, I I did go the teacher route, and I did get my master's in legal studies. Did not take the bar. Did not want to take the bar. (laughs) I just wanted to know the law. I don't want to practice the law. I just want to know the law. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Similar, wanting to get an early education and just policy work and really making sure that the policies that are going forward are socially just and that they're, they make sense for all the students who are in early childhood, right? Um, which leads me to kind of this next question is, so you are a part of the Black Lives Matter at school movement and the organization. So I know you talk about it in, in an article you wrote within the book itself, but how did you become involved within this movement? And you know, how have you seen it grow over the last couple of years? Yeah, so I love telling that story as well, too, because it was just it's just how things come together. Right. So um, we had seen educators in Seattle. They did the first uh, day of action on Black Lives Matter. And so I had been following educators like Jesse Higopian and Ray now um, just because of the work they had been doing and in, in, in fighting education reform issues. So we kind of heard that they had done this one day thing and thought, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, so then one day in January, I just I also followed the Working Educators Caucus out of Philly. So mm-hmm. they're a caucus within the Philadelphia Teachers Union that I had you know, presented at their first annual conference. So I just knew that they were doing really cool on the ground work and I followed them on social media. So one day they post this calendar link and they're like, this is our Black Lives Matter calendar of events. And I was like, what is this, right? And so they were the first ones to take the day of action into a week. They picked a week in January. It was around Martin Luther King. Day holiday, and they picked that week in January, and they took this statement at the time. So at the time, there was um, the Global Black Lives Matter organization had this statement on their website called This We Believe, and it listed 13 guiding principles. And so they decided to take those and turn those into curriculum teaching points about Black Lives Matter at school. So the calendar just starts like Monday with two or three of the principals on Tuesday. And then they have lessons and events that they, you can do throughout that week. And I was just like, 
this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like no one had really took this movement that we all heard about, but how do you bring it into schools? How do you, how do you show children? And as we know, there was a lot of misinformation about Black Lives Matter, right? Like they're a terrorist organization. They're doing protests and disrupting ambulances and services. There was all this stuff. They're a hate group, right? And this was a way to say, actually, no, they were three Black women, queer, two queer Black women who started to put together this idea that we could galvanize the country around three simple words, Black Lives Matter. Mm. And, and as a result, you know, chapters sprung around the country. They were doing so much work. They were trying to really change the narrative, um, you know, from pre-civil rights era and what we had in the 60s and 70s to what we were dealing with today. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you bring that into schools? And so the, the Philadelphia teachers did that. Um, so I was aware of this document. I had reviewed it and thought it was pretty interesting. At the same time, I was on the planning committee for the Free Mind, Free People Conference. So Mm -hmm. an organization called Education for Liberation um, promotes, um, they put on a conference every two years called Free Mind, Free People. Mm -hmm. And the 2017 conference was going to be in the summer in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And so I was was actually on the workshops committee and I was like, wow, if we could get the Philadelphia teachers to come and do a workshop on what they did, that would be awesome. So reached out to them and said, hey, you guys should put in a proposal. We'd love to have you come to Baltimore since it's so close. We'd love to have you talk about what you did. And they did. Um, And so at the Free Minds, Free People conference, we went, we listened to the Philadelphia educators talk about the work. And there was a paper that went around that said, are you interested in doing this? And it was like the national sign up, right? And so everyone there signed up. At the same time that summer, there were protests around the death of Michael Ferguson, and there were teach-ins happening. So other educators were at the Ferguson teach-in, and they got word of it and said, hey, there's a group that's going to do National Black Lives Matter at school. Are you interested? So they had their sign-up sheet. And so somehow those sheets got together. And then before anyone knew what Zoom was, we were meeting on Zoom on Sundays starting in September in 20. 20- uh, 17 um, to start planning what would be the first national, sorry, 2016, to start planning what would be the first national Black Lives Matter at schools um, event, right? And so building off of what Philly did, we wanted to make it a week of action. Um, we decided to move it to February because there was a lot of issues around who's off for Martin Luther King Day, who's not, right? Is mm-hmm. that going to cause an issue? Um, and then it's like, well, it is Black History Month. Maybe if we had this in the first week of Black History Month, that would be okay. It's not for a lot of people, but <laughs> that's okay. We decided to do it. So, um, and, and we were just a group of educators all across the country just meeting on our own, trying to figure out what we could do. And we came up with the idea that we would have curriculum resources, lessons to teach those principles, mm-hmm. and that we would do events around the principles or a group of demands. So we got together and created three demands in the beginning. Um, we wanted them to hire more Black teachers. We wanted to end um, the use of... Um, I'm sorry, no, and that, that one came out later. So uh, the first one was about mandating a Black studies or ethnic studies curriculum in K-12, um, hire more Black teachers, and whew, I can't believe I'm blanking on the third one. So the fourth one that we adopted later was to fund counselors, not cops, and, mm-hmm. and that came after the assault on um, the Black teachers, right? But we had the three initial demands, and we said you can do an event around the demands or around the... Um, or around the principles. And so we got each local group to start planning what their week of action would look like that week. Um, and so, yeah, it took off in different cities in different way. New York City has the most talented art teaching educators. So they were doing these amazing graphics, like the images you see behind me. They were doing these amazing graphics that we loved. Um, 
And so everyone was doing different things and we would just kind of meet and talk about it and, and, and the work. And then the week of action came and everyone did their things in the different cities. And so that was the first year that we had this national movement um, and it just kept growing year after year. So we would just invite new educators to join us and start planning um, the week of action. And it's still it's still ongoing. We've expanded to this idea of a year of purpose because we don't mm-hmm. want this to just be something that we do in Black History Month. We want to be grounded in these principles all year long, but we still want a week of action to kind of highlight all of the work. Um, and so that's been really good too. We have uh, now we have two paid staff members, right, who are able to do the work for us. Um, we just, we've grown a lot. Um, endorsements by both unions, which has been a long fought battle and it's still not perfect, but at least the teachers in the union states now have uh, um, almost like protection, right, that mm-hmm. they can do this because it's been endorsed by the national unions. And so we still suffer attacks from people who don't like the name, don't mm-hmm. like the work, right, but um, we are still seeing it happen. And right now, local groups are gearing up for the week of action and what that might look like. Wow. I I love that. I love that starting with educators and teachers and, you know, just really on the ground and seeing what's going on with students and seeing what students want. Um, You know, I think that's one thing I've really enjoyed about, you know, this book and reading through it. It's, It's kind of like an anthology. So there's, you know, there's articles and there's interviews and, there's images from like the actual, you know, the week of action and, and the posters that you mentioned, they're so colorful and beautiful and I'm, I'm loving them. <laughs> um, but I also really appreciate that there was early childhood that was also incorporated in this book as well, because I feel like we kind of get left behind sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, we don't get thought of the same way with, with early childhood and this kind of overall thought is that you know, preschool kids are too young to learn about race, too young to learn about um, a lot of these topics, which is very inaccurate. <laughs> you know, like they were born black and they're going to continue to be black after, you know, a preschool. So we do a big disservice to students and not even just black students, but all students by not having these conversations and these guiding principles that are in the book Um, And in, you know, the movement Black Lives Matter in school, there's like 13 principles are so integral. There's a a really great, um, I think, article that's written in the book by Lelena Garcia. And she talks about how she incorporated these principles within an early childhood education program, which is so important. And it's we can have these conversations and they can still be developmentally appropriate. (laughs) Um, And we can do this in a way that is very holistic and you know the posters are a great way bringing in you know books as a resource are a really great way and the coloring book was a really great way to really just incorporate the the younger the younger students in this whole this whole process which just made my early education heart very happy (laughs) yeah yeah that was a very important part to me too when when we Mm -hmm. were putting together the book right because so the first thing I noticed and 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 Lelena did this in New York City right away was they translated the 13 guiding principles into language for young children Mm -hmm. and so that's what she's talking about her chapter with Rosie and that was super important right like how do we bring the and it's funny because high school students love the language for young kids because it's accessible (laughs) right and they like it so everyone can use that language it's not Mm -hmm. just for little kids but that said we can bring this to you right who doesn't want to talk to young kids children 
even about empathy and restorative justice and diversity. People struggle on trans affirming, queer affirming, Mm -hmm. right? But we found ways to use that language that matters too. And so, and then, you know, Lelania, so for the long time, you know, Lelania and Karen, Karen Davidson is the artist of Mm -hmm. the pictures you see behind me and in most of our work, they started making coloring books, right? With the principal work for young children and it was great. And then Leanne Lowe published the first children's book of the Black Lives Matter. So we had to stop doing the coloring books because it was being published, right? Mm -hmm. But it was such a great thing that we have. And we actually have Dave too now. They have one for younger kids and a slightly older Mm -hmm. that Leanne Lowe uh, was able to do. And so, yeah, it's always been grounded in the early childhood principles because early childhood teachers needed to do that. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, they had all struggled at some point about talking to their children about another national tragedy, right? I mean, George Floyd happened in 2020 and, and they had to sit down and say, how do we talk to our kids about this, right? Mm-hmm. And so they knew that they had to be prepared and using these language, these principles mm-hmm. was a really good way to help the kids think about why these movements happen from time to time. And how do we, how do we think about ourselves as loving engagement, right? How do we think about ourselves in collective value, supporting black families and black women, right? And so having that language has also been helpful. Um, another person that I interviewed in the book was Takima Bunch-Smith. Mm-hmm. And at the time she was directing a center out of uh, Bank Street on race, equity, and culture. And so she was organizing a yearly symposium that was all early childhood Black Lives Matter at school. Like it was the first time we had a whole event just dedicated to mm-hmm. early childhood Black Lives Matter at school. And and it was it was great, right? And I the first year, I think I made my students watch it virtually in my class. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to attend when I moved to New York before it ended um, in person, and then it switched to virtual again. Um, and so it's always been something we want to do is connecting across the, the spectrum, not just K through 12, but birth mm-hmm. through 12. And higher ed. Higher ed has also been a part. There's a lot of chapters on higher ed in the book because higher ed has gotten involved and they wanted to see what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and that's what I think people lose sight of is that it was educators who said, we want to do this. No one's paying them to do it. Mm-hmm. They're not getting anything out of it. They just said, this is important. I want to be part of this movement. I want to be part of this work. And I want mm-hmm. to bring this into my classroom. And they got to get their colleagues on board and get the school and their union. And so there's a lot about union organizing, how to get that kind of support in the book as well. And so, yeah, I was very proud of the the early childhood chapters. I worked with each of those um, authors to make sure that their voices were prominent. Um, we were able to do a, a, a webinar discussion with Defending the Early Years and the Early Childhood Contributors to make sure that people know this does belong in early childhood. You know, I, I'm doing a lot of teaching and research right now on positive racial identity development. And that is so important in the early years. And and most early childhood teachers don't know what that is. We don't know that racial identity development is a thing that starts at birth, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we have so much responsibility to ensure happens in a positive way. Everybody has racial identity development. It can be positive or negative, depending on the experiences they get at home and in the community. And teachers have a responsibility to think about how they are assuring that students get positive racial affirmations and knowledge. And so something like this curriculum is super important because it helps young children understand, start getting that early, right? Especially yes. white children. I know a lot of people say, oh, it's not for them. I've been in schools where the students are predominantly white. They're young. They're singing about mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter. One mom was like, I pick my daughter up from school. We get on the train and she looks at this black man and goes, Black Lives Matter, sir. And he's just like, oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know. My daughter's just saying this to people. And I'm like, that's the point though. She's yeah. comfortable saying this. And she knows mm-hmm. that you know, she can say this to this man and he'll get it and, and understand. And she's not going to grow up and say, well, don't all lives matter? Or, mm. you know, why are you, you know, she's not going to have that kind of 
troubling ideas because she's already been grounded in mm-hmm. the idea that we live in a world that doesn't always value black lives. So we have a responsibility to make sure that we do. And so young children get it. They have such a keen sense of fairness, right? And they understand. And so actually I was just talking about this the other day. People say, you know, well, they, they, they worry. So Rosie, who's, who's in the book, had said to me, you know, I was worried at first because um, I thought, you know, the kids were going to say, well, well, why, why not? Don't all lives matter? Young kids don't say that. Older kids do because they've heard that line before and they're yeah. repeating it. When she said to her young, predominantly white kids in Brooklyn, well, we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. They're like, duh, of course, Black Lives Matter. Why, why, why do we even need? Mm-hmm. And she had to remind them. She's like, well, actually, in some people in this country, they don't matter. And they were like, that's not fair. Why, why would people do that? That, right so they're um, immediately like one this makes sense yes of mm-hmm. course and then two well why isn't why doesn't everybody agree I don't understand this right unless they've heard something different at home mm-hmm. then they might bring but most kids don't hear anything about this at home so mm-hmm. their first introductions in school and they get it and so they were really were shocked to know that mm-hmm. there are some people who might not agree with this or the history of how things in this country have left people to wonder if um, everyone believes something like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, they're just, they're so keen and they get it and they need to be a part of these conversations. Yes. They need to understand why there are protests, why people are out in the street, why mm-hmm. there are flags, why there are signs. They, they need to make sense of that. And they will, if we, if we give them the language and the tools to do so. Yes. Snaps for that. Yes. If you give them the language and the tools, <laughs> And it's such a disservice when we do not openly have these conversations and when we don't bring these into the early education sphere, right? Because, you know, the the data is out there, the research is out there that's letting us know that even if we're not explicitly stating this to children, they're observing their surroundings, right? Um, You know, when I do trainings on inclusion and anti-bias and and all these different things, it's, yeah, they're, they're very aware of who is in the room and who isn't in the room. They're being very aware of who is important and who isn't important, right? Based on uh-huh. what we're doing into the classroom, based on what media they're seeing in their day-to-day lives, based on the conversations that we're having every single day. And so giving them those tools in that language to start having these conversations and start questioning these things, you know, having the tools and being able to um, have the, you know, the, the inner fortitude to be able to, to question these things and to ask those questions about, well, why are these beliefs happening? Why aren't people being treated fairly? You know, how can we move forward in a world where we have a world where we want to see, which is where people are being treated fairly, they're being treated kindly with respect. Um, everyone is being treated with dignity, right? This whole just like idea of just social justice in the classroom. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. More, more of this. Let's bring more of this into more of our this. classrooms. <laughs> Yeah. And especially because when we don't speak on these things and they, you know, children can make illogical conclusions, right? So if they see something, you know, they'll say, oh, everyone in my neighborhood looks like me Mm -hmm. and we're all good people. You're not from my neighborhood. You must not be a good person. That's a logical, illogical conclusion. That's Mm -hmm. very logical for a young child because they're trying to group things that are similar and different in very concrete ways. Mm -hmm. They don't have a lot of room for gray, right? So there's not a lot of nuance. So if you're not talking about or they'll say okay all the people who look look like me live in my neighborhood they live in houses the people who don't look like me sleep Mm -hmm. on the street 
in their mind, they're going to think that those people want that or there's something wrong with them. Like mm-hmm. they don't have an understanding as to what. And here's the thing, though, with little children, you, you can't really justify homelessness to them because it doesn't make sense and they won't accept it. Right. So yeah. when you try, they're going to call you on it. Well, what, why don't we just give them a house? Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they have to. What do you mean they have to earn it? They should sleep on the street. Right. They'll still say these things yep. to you when you try and justify why someone might be unhoused. Right. Mm-hmm. So so some people just shy away from it because they don't because yeah. the kid is just not going to accept anything less than you're hoarding empty houses for people to not sleep in and letting them sleep on the street, which is kind of true. Which, right? which is accurate, it, you know, yeah. so, so, but, but we have to help them because they will come to erroneous conclusions yes. the way their mind works if yes. we don't. And so sometimes parents want to be silent, mm-hmm. but that silence will justify erroneous conclusions. So, and you don't want them making those conclusions. So mm-hmm. you do have to speak out and say things. And even if they're not, you know, help them just make sense of what they're noticing, right? Right? And say, yeah, unfortunately, we live in a country that that, that that allows people to sleep on the street instead of providing mm-hmm. them for homes. And some people are working against that because they think it's wrong like you mm-hmm. do and I do. So we have to think about what can we do and what should we do? Is it better to just give one person some money right now? Or should we go to a protest? Or should we write to our elected official? What can we do to yes. kind of deal with this issue? And kids really understand that. But if you don't say anything yes. and they're just making these conclusions that may or not be justified mm-hmm. It may not be what you want them to think about the situation, yeah. then you've missed this opportunity to help them think through it. Um, and I think a lot of people are afraid that kids are going to question their parents. Well, why don't you do something about this? And why, you know, and I get that. And kids want us to do a lot of things. The yeah. same thing when they ask, well, why don't I have a pony? Because you're not getting a pony. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so we can't be afraid to say, you know, you're right. This is a serious issue. Maybe we can all be doing something about yeah. it. What could I do? What can we all do? Or you tell them what you do do. Maybe you do mm-hmm. donate to fundraisers and you and you donate food donations to help people, mm-hmm. right? And you want to let them know about that. Um, but we shouldn't shy away because we're afraid of what the kids might say. Um, mm-hmm. We should really lean into that, that in their mind, this is a solvable issue. <laughs> so maybe yes. if we listen to them, we could solve all these issues. I mean, exactly. And what I love about that too, is that you're not just bringing an issue to young children and just being like, this is an issue. So anyways, let's go learn some ABCs. Because how disheartening is that (laughs) to just be told that, oh, yeah, there's atrocities happening in the world. And then to move on from that, I think that's kind of what the the vision that people have sometimes about what's happening when we have these conversations. Like, you're going to tell them about about mass shootings. You're going to tell them about all these these, these scary things in the world. Like, they're going to be terrified. And, well, yeah, if someone just told me that and walked away, then, yeah, I would be terrified, right? (laughs) And yeah, yeah. But maybe we're talking about the things that one, they are seeing or who they're not seeing, right? We're talking about these things and then we're also doing actionable things. So what are our ideas about what we could do? Like that's the whole idea of just bringing in experiential, experiential learning into the classroom is that mm-hmm. these are real life challenges and let's think of some real life solutions. And in those solutions, that connects to all kinds of different things that you're doing in the classroom. That's literature. That's, you know, you could do some fine motor development within that. You could, you can incorporate that into all of your other different elements and domains that you need to focus on with your teaching. Like it, it goes into everything that you do by helping them to find these solutions and critically think and to engage in this in a very meaningful way. It's such an, it's an important aspect of it. And I think it does go back into kind of our teacher preparation programs is that I remember when my, you know, teacher preparation programs, when I was, you know, learning early childhood education, kind of what you mentioned before, I learned a lot about theory. And I think theory is very important. Um, I will never say, I, I love learning theory. 
when I'm teaching, I also go back to theory. I'm like, let's talk about theory. But also, <laughs> what what are we like? There's a lot that's not being taught about in those programs. And so it's leaving educators feeling really unprepared because we have these increasingly more diverse classrooms, right? Um, you know, the, the global, like the minority is now the global majority, right? So most of our classrooms are going to be diverse. They're going to have diverse um, students and backgrounds and languages, uh, diverse family structures. It's just, it's not going to be homogenous really anywhere we go anymore. And yet I don't think that the educators who are coming out of these classes, you know, they're preparation classes today, I don't think that they're prepared for this increasingly diverse classroom that has different needs than they had, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's just, it's a different, they're different now, <laughs> especially mm -hmm. post-COVID. Mm -hmm. I think classrooms are just way different now post-COVID than they were yeah. before COVID, just in very different ways. Um, and so with you working, you know, having this dynamic of both higher education and early childhood, you know, what have you kind of seen in terms of changes going forward or what you kind of wish would be changed within, you know, these kind of college classes for potential teachers? Yeah, yeah, it's such a, it's such a tough one. I mean, I've been a teacher ed for a long time. I was in teacher ed education for a long time mm -hmm. and it just got to be, I don't know how to, I believe in, I believe in public ed education. Mm -hmm. I believe we need good teachers. Mm -hmm. I want it to prepare good teachers, but I also felt very, like I was setting them up for failure in some ways. Mm -hmm. I know that's hard to say, right? But like, you're coming in to this master's degree program that is not cheap by any means. And I 100% stand by the program, the last school I worked with, Sarah Lawrence, our art of teaching program, I feel was one of the most best programs I worked in to prepare teachers because we did not follow the traditional model. We did not, we had our own beliefs about children and child development that we stuck to. And we had a small program where we really wanted to get you to see children deeply, to know who they are as people before you try and, and teach them something. Like we spent, our students spent a whole year at our um, child development program where they really got to understand this model, this descriptive review process where you get to like really know children and observe them before we then send you out into the public schools to learn about lesson planning and all of this. But at the end of the day, all of that work, you know, it's super expensive and it's, it's probably one of the best programs, I think, to prepare teachers. But then you're still up against this public school system that's just mm -hmm. not going it, to, it just made it so hard. And I just felt like you're, we're just still doing teachers such a disservice to send them out there. So I needed a break. I was getting mm -hmm. burnout. Teacher educators can get burnout just like teachers can. I was also doing a ton of work on COVID and the impact. And I just was like, teachers are, it's not even burnt. Burnout is not enough to describe them, right? And my latest article chapter that's coming out, I, I go into the idea of de demoralization that other people have coined. Teachers are being demoralized. They're not able to access the moral joy in the work that they do because they're being forced to do things that, that challenge that moral mm -hmm. center. Um, and so they're being demotivated. And that's another thing about it. It's not the same thing as coming in and not being motivated, like lacking motivation, unmotivation, your demotivation, the motivation that brought you to this field. And we were all very motivated when we showed up because you have to be. Mm -hmm. It's being taken away and you have no control over it. And so you don't want to engage anymore. You're disengaged. You're not feeling the 
enjoy and you're overworked and overburdened. And it's more than just burnout because burnout implies that you can fix this problem if you set better boundaries, drink more water, get more sleep. We cannot self-care our way out of what is happening in teaching and teacher education. There's not enough self-care in the world to fix this broken system. And so it becomes such a challenge to stay in teacher education and see these young hopefuls and watch the hope just drain out of their eyes as they spend more time in the program. And many of them starting to question if they want to teach at all. And so then what is the purpose of bringing you in and watching you leave Mm -hmm. in a year or two because it's just not sustainable? I say all that to say I'm still invested in teacher education and in public education, but personally, I just need to do something else. So I'm trying to use my advocacy skills, my luring skills to think about how we can change that system. But I do believe that teacher education needs to let go of there's like the bureaucratic things that that the state requires. Mm -hmm. If that's all your program is built on, well, the state says you have to learn how to teach literacy, Mm -hmm. math, science classroom, if if all your program is based on state requirements, Mm -hmm. then you have nothing to offer young, ideally students about the realities of teaching. Mm -hmm. You have to be guided by something more than meeting state standards, because meeting state standards is not enough. Mm -hmm. We can produce hundreds of teachers who have met state standards who will not be any very effective in the classroom dealing with all the other issues, and they're not going to want to, because dealing with state standards doesn't prepare you to want to address the challenges that our immigrant children are bringing to the classroom, our neurodiverse children are bringing to the classroom, our LGBTQ children and their families are bringing to the classroom, right? You're not going to be prepared to deal with any of that because the, the, the standard, you know, state standards don't care about any of that. They want you to know it exists and know the language, right? E-L-L-E-N-L, BIPOC. Mm-hmm. But they don't give you enough of the tools to actually know what does that mean to be in a room full of other human beings and have to address these issues in a learning context, right? So I think teacher education programs have to have a, and not just the mission and vision, we all have that, but an approach that shows that they are committed to the ideas of teaching and learning outside of state and national standards. So Sarah Lawrence had that through and through. Mm -hmm. Their program was fully committed. and, And I think that's what grounded us. And that's what was able to really help our teachers you know, latch on to something. Is it sustainable in a public setting that doesn't value that knowledge? That's another question. But I can't mm-hmm. control where you go with a degree once you get the degree. Yeah. I can only control what we give you to get the degree, right? And yeah. so that's always been a challenge for us is that our students go and work in, in, in systems that don't always value the knowledge. We've made good relationships with schools that do, mm-hmm. and we try and put our students in those pla- in those places okay. where we know the approach that we give is valued, right? But how many, we're talking, I'm talking about one small teacher education program that's graduating three to 20 students a year. That's not enough, right? That's nothing. And compared to New York City, where most people are going to the larger teacher ed programs to get their degree. So I think, you know, teacher ed programs have to really think, what is our goal here? Are we just churning out teachers who can meet state standards? Or are we producing teachers that have a complete understanding of an approach, an ideology, a belief about teaching and learning that they can use? Because if you don't have that, then you're just you're just lost. You're just mm-hmm. out here doing things to do things. You're yeah. just out here collecting a check. And in this environment, you can go collect a lot easier checks yeah. than teaching young people. Oh, yeah. right? like, oh, yeah. You're not going to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And if the work, if you're not making a ton of money and the work is so hard, 
hard and you're jealous of all your friends who have like project manager lives where they just leave at five o'clock on a Friday and they don't think about that job till Monday. You're not going to feel like any of this is worth anything. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to help teachers connect again to that. What was it about education that sparked? You know, I remember the first time when I was doing that, that placement in high school and I was working in in a first grade classroom and I was working with a little boy and it was a struggle, man. He just didn't get it. But then one day it clicked and he came up to me and he could solve the problem on his own. Like his mind made the mental math jump to do that math in his head, to carry that one and to get it. And I was just Mm. like, right. I'll never forget that moment, that joy of like, you can keep working with a child and see the gears almost turning until something Mm -hmm. that was such a problem before is now not, it's now part of what they can do. That has always been my motivation. There are so many, because most people just wrote him off. Oh, he's slow. Oh, he doesn't get it. And they would have dumbed down the curriculum instead of just keep working with them. Now, what is that? That's theory. That was like Gotsky's zone of proximal development. We were there. He needed my help. He just needed time and he got it. And boom, he was able to catch up. Mm-hmm. Right. But if I wasn't there that year giving him that one on one and his teacher couldn't give it to him because she had 26 other students, what would have happened to that boy if he didn't get this basic skill then? Would he be mm-hmm. a failed first grade because he would have never finished his math? Right. Like, I, I just can't imagine those things. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what brought me in. That's what motivated me. That I was in love with the idea of teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And I think we lose sight of all that. Yeah. We lose sight of all that in standards and testing mm-hmm. and all that, that we're missing what this is all about. What does it take for someone to learn something new, mm-hmm. retain it, and be able to apply it in new situations? Yeah. And what are the effective ways to share that knowledge to help them get it? All of that is lost when we think about, you know, all the bureaucracy of schools today. It's like they lost sight that there's this aspect of teaching and learning that's so important Mm -hmm. that no one's focusing on. And I think that's what we need to get back to in teacher education. There are theories about teaching and learning that are lost in in the testing, in the standards, in Mm -hmm. all of the other things that we're trying to do, you know? And I see this now with my own kids who are in high school and I'm like, I don't think learning that much about about the topics is really helping you down the line, right? We all learn these. They're like, well, didn't you learn this, mom? I said, yeah, I did learn it, but it didn't stick because <laughs> all I did was memorize it in high school and pass yeah. the test, and I've never had to apply it in my real life, so I don't know how. I don't know it anymore. Yeah. And they're like, well, why are we learning it? And I'm like, for the same reason, unfortunately, <laughs> to pass a test so you can forget it later. And I'm like, what? How has things not changed in twenty some odd years? that we're still doing the same thing. We're filling children's heads with a lot of meaningless knowledge Mm. so they can pass a test and then wondering while they grow up, they don't want to read, they can't apply the skills, Mm. they don't know any of those things because it wasn't taught in a way that's helpful. And I know I'm not the only, and maybe it's different for some people. Maybe what you learned is useful if you're able to go apply it later on and you're, if you're doing a science program, but you know, there's a lot that my kids need to learn, but this formula about photosynthesis that I don't remember, I don't think it's the most important thing right now, but does he need to understand plants and their roles in our environment? Mm -hmm. Yes. And why we need to go out and plant trees and why we need to care about global warming and all of these other things, of course, but that's not what he's getting. He's getting formulas that he can't understand and he's never going to remember and diagrams of leaf that he's never going to remember, but he's supposed to memorize. So I, I argue with my friends back and forth on 
on this, right? How much of this knowledge is needed? Is it relevant? Is it helping? And, you know, it's a debate, but it's also important because it's happening right now in their lives, right? Like, I think we just put too much knowledge into children and hoping that it sticks, but that's not what learning theories tell us. Learning theories tell us the knowledge that sticks is the knowledge you construct through your own experiments, through your own wanting to solve and know things. So why aren't we giving children more opportunities to pose questions and answer those questions, Mm -hmm. right? Why aren't we giving them the standards and saying, show me you can do this. This is the standard. Go out there. You got an hour. Work on it. Show me what you can do instead of giving them a lot of information that they're not going to remember. I just think it's backwards, right? The, 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 what we want, the way that we're not getting what we want because of the way we're going about it. Right. And I don't think most people realize that because that means calling into question everything. I have friends right now. When I tell them that they're like, you're telling me to throw out my entire science curriculum. I'm like, yes, (laughs) I'm telling you to throw out the entire science curriculum. Think backwards. What do you want kids to know? Okay, how can they demonstrate that on their own and step back? Stop Mm -hmm. trying to give it to them, but try and get them to come because that discovery is going to last with them longer than you making them memorize something and doing a lab that has no connection, no relevancy to their life. Yeah, it's cool. And it's cool in that moment. And they like you for it. But 10 years from now, are they going to remember anything from this? I don't think so. So how do we help foster deep, true learning if that's what we really want? I would argue that's not what we really that's the, that might be that's another the key that's the key right there you there it is <laughs> is that what we truly want i'd also agree and argue that i don't think that that is the ultimate goal of education in the space that it is right now i think for a lot of educators and educators that i've spoken to and educators that i've worked with who are passionate who love their students, who love the art of teaching and being in the classroom. But as you kind of mentioned before, that demoralization, like the kind of dehumanization and the the lack of dignity in the teaching career and profession, it really does, it does a number. <laughs> like, you know, it makes it really impossible for teachers who are like us to stay in the field because when you're constantly just kind of going up against the wall and you're pushing and you're, you recognize that I see that this is wrong. I I see that it's wrong. I'm in the classroom. My students are having a hard time. I'm having a hard time. And nothing is working about this system right now. I can see that. And I know the pathway to go forward, but it can feel so disheartening to keep bringing that up and keep bringing it up and keep bringing it up. And it just feels like you're speaking into the void. (laughs) Like, Like nothing is really coming of this. And you're just saying like, we're drowning here please just, just give us anything, you know, like we'll even take the little door from the Titanic. Like, just give me something <laughs> to hold on to. And it's disheartening. And, and that idea of just teaching with intention, what is our intention when we're in the classroom with these students? Is it that we want our students to go out into the world and be obedient, to follow the rules, to not question, to, just be okay with the world as it is. Is that our intention? Because if that's our intention, then we're going, we're going on the right path. <laughs> we're going for it. We're going we're for it. it. I have a lot of people tell me it's the process. It's the process. I said, how is this process really beneficial? Yeah. How is it that beneficial? The process of studying something that makes no sense, that is not relevant to your life, mm-hmm. just to put, spit out an answer that someone else agrees with. That's the process. That's, that's, that's what we that's, want kids to do. 
Okay. That's I don't really, agree with that. Problem. That's really, the I don't goal. think, I don't agree that that's what we need. I, I mean, I, I get it because it's what we've all experienced, you know, we've mm-hmm. all been there, Brittany. We've all, so we don't want, it's so scary to think of something completely different. Mm-hmm. And that's what I trying to work through with parents. I, I also study play because I think it's the way, right. For all of us. Right. But to really, you got to lean into that fear. I know I'm asking you to let your child experience something you've never experienced, but man, what we experienced is got to change. The world has yeah. changed. We don't need to memorize the formula for photosynthesis because you can look it up in five <laughs> seconds on this device that you have. Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether you know it. That's not the world we live in anymore. Remember when we used to have to know things because it was a card catalog and you had to pull out the card catalog and you had to look up things? I mean, I'm definitely dating myself. But like before tech internet, right, information was hard to come by. You had to know it because you couldn't just get it anywhere but that's not the world we live in anymore no. so we don't need to be able to to memorize things because we can find now we need to critically evaluate the things that we can find like this is it true just because it comes up first in google doesn't mean it's the best source people have gamed google to know how to make their products pop up first that doesn't mean it's the best it doesn't mean it's accurate ai is out here giving out misinformation that sounds real good for mm-hmm. a reason because it's easy to talk a good game but yeah. to not be honest, right? We got we've always had to fact check Wikipedia because anyone can go into Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And, doesn't mean it's not a valid tool. It means you gotta double check yes. that source when they link to something. You gotta click on it, open it. Does it say what it says? I've mm-hmm. had Wikipedia disappoint me a few times. That source does not say that, and I had to go back and tell mm-hmm. them whoever put that there. No, they're wrong, right? So, but kids don't know how to do this, so they're just copying everything that they see. Yeah. They think everything online is the gospel. Mm-hmm. They're not taught to evaluate, it. and that's and so they're not being set up. But they've memorized you know a square plus b squared equals c squared and they don't know why and they have this thing stuck in their head right but they don't know what it means and how to use it and so yeah it's it's very very challenging but if we go back to early childhood we go back to children who come into this world so fully there there's not another this is what separates us from the animals is our capacity to learn Children have this innate capacity and ability and desire to learn. I mean, if you think about language development, which if you honestly read the research, they still don't get it. It just happens. There's just parts of our body and brain that are just wired for this thing to happen Mm -hmm. in our species that is very, very hard to like explain. It's just there, right? It's that that capacity there, that young age to learn language, Mm -hmm. to be able to do it. But the drive, the curiosity is there. And if we just let that go, instead of, getting rid of it. We spend all of early child education trying to tamper down this natural desire to make kids sit mm-hmm. still and listen to you when they already know what they want to do. They already know the mm-hmm. questions they want to ask. They already know what they want to learn, but we don't trust in that. Mm-hmm. And our lack of trust in that m- makes it go away. Yes. You know, there's this great quote I use by the physicist Carl Sagan, where he talks about young kids always asking all these questions, right? He said, kindergartners are the great. They have the best questions. Like what color is the moon and how old is the world? And why do we have toes? Right. And he goes on and he goes, but then you go to talk to seniors in high school and they don't ask any questions. They have, they don't want to know nothing. He's mm-hmm. like, something happens between kindergarten and senior year that makes kids incurious. Mm-hmm. And that's what public education is right now. It is the pursuit of taking children's natural curiosity killing it, mm-hmm. filling it with a bunch of useless knowledge, mm-hmm. and then testing them to that knowledge and making sure that they're college and career ready. Yep. Why? Why would we do that to, to our children? Yeah. Why? You know, and it's, it's just so sad because 
it, you know, we would, it doesn't need to be that way because it was done to us maybe. And I'm sorry, it was done to us in a lot of different ways, but it shouldn't have been done to us. We don't need to keep doing it to our kids. No. There, there are better ways. We just have to lean into the fear of the unknown mm. and trust that our children want to learn. They want to be capable. They want to be successful. They want to take on the world. They want to engage. And it's our job to just support them in that and to go on the journey with them. It's a journey when I see teachers learning with children the, the 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 joy in them because now they're seeing the kids in such a different light. Mm. You know, I talk about play and liberating children, but it also liberates adults yes. because now they can actually be with children and it's so powerful, but there's a lot we got to do to get people there. It's, it's a lot. So hopefully conversations like this will help and yes. others, you know, because we just need people to, to rethink everything and yes. to, to want to try something different. Uh, yes. I, my heart is just like so open right now because these are the conversations that I know I needed to hear when I was, you know, an, an early emergent teacher. And I just needed to know that you're not insane. <laughs> these are issues. <laughs> I know you're being told that these aren't issues, but they are issues. <laughs> and that to keep fighting that fight and to keep having these conversations, because there are other educators out there who are feeling that same thing. And are just like, what do you do? <laughs> um, and on this topic, um, you know, moving forward, how do you reimagine education? Yeah, that's a great question. I spent a lot of time thinking about that too. Um, you know, again, I, I imagine like, you know, I imagine child development bleeding what we know about education, mm -hmm. right? So first of all, it's got to be, we know a lot. God, we know so much about child development. And 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 those theories from, you know, those theories that, yeah, I still teach the old dead white men, right? Mm -hmm. The Vygotsky, the Piaget, the Erickson, because they hold up through the test of time, right? And there are new theories, but those theories are still relevant. And if we just wanted to let those theories alone guide us, we could, right? But then we got to look into new theories, right? Theories about people who are studying folks that from um, diverse places, right, that we don't really look at um, diverse other countries, other ways of being indigenous, decolonized theories, right? We need to bring those into the front too. How are those children and their way of being? How can we harness that in the classroom? Um, so we learn into what we know and we just kind of step back, right? For me, it starts in a space where we, yes, we have, education is, is part caring for children while they're adults, while the grownups in their lives are doing other things, whatever those things are, work, contribute, whatever, right? But that that is a function. We can't deny that. And we saw that in the pandemic, right? People mm -hmm. can't go to be con contribute to society, whether that's through work or whatever, if their children can't be cared for, right? So we have to understand that that education is care and and, and, and children need to be cared. They, they shouldn't be warehoused, right? They mm -hmm. should be cared for. And, and so caring is part of that, you know, giving them the space to explore, to think through. So I imagine the first few years that a child is in a caring institution, they're free. They're free to figure out what it is they want to do. They're exploring materials. They're learning new things. And, and the teacher's job is to document all of that learning so that if people say, well, how do you know the kids? Got, I know. I watch them. This is what they can do. They can do this. They can do that. And work with the child. And then as they get older, they start looking at big questions and projects and problems. I would say projects for a while because projects are a great way for children to, to study something in depth, right? Mm -hmm. So you like, and projects can be on anything. Like you can do a project on 
you know, supermarkets and food delivery? How does food get to the supermarket? That's a great question for yes. children to explore and understand, right? Because it uncovers so much of our economy. But how are avocados picked in California making it to your supermarket in New York, right? That's a great project to study. And there's mm -hmm. things like that that students can study. Um, and they can do a lot of things in that, um, in that way that I think are super important. And then once they've studied and they learn to like conceptualize ideas and projects, then they can get into uh, big questions, right? Under understanding, answering these big questions that don't have a right or wrong answer, but lead to smaller questions that they can spend time fleshing out. So I imagine the, the and I say grades, but maybe it's the year span, but let's say, you know, you know, year 13 and 14, everyone has this global question that they're looking at. And then the kids are coming up with sub questions under that, and they're working individually or with groups to explore that sub question in different ways. And they're documenting all the things they're doing. And then they're showcasing it like you do for a dissertation or a thesis. They're bringing all the information. You know, they have the standards, they have the rubrics, and they're saying, okay, yeah, this is how I've done this. They're owning the learning. Mm -hmm. They're owning, they're documenting it, and they're presenting it to their peers, the adults in their school, other people in the community who say, yeah, I'm going to come listen to what these 13, 14 year olds have been doing all day on my, my public school dime. And I want to know what they're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And they come to these spaces where that's what they do. And they showcase. And so they're being cared for, they're being housed, but they're also engaging and learning in lots of different ways that matter to mm -hmm. them. And they're graduating high school with an associate's degree because they're learning so much that they're not being limited to this mm -hmm. high school curriculum, right? They're, they're getting out there, they're doing different things. And I think it could be that great, right? And we can have kids and they could be solving complex problems at young ages. They can be starting new businesses. There's a lot that they can be doing. They can also be just grounding themselves and learning about who they are. They don't all have to be the next Einstein, right? The next mm -hmm. this. They could be just themselves, right? Learning what they like and what they don't like and what kind of person they want to be. They can work socially with others. Um, there's a lot. There's just so much. But I envision this space where children are just free. They're not being compared to other students. It doesn't matter if they're learning the same thing on the same day as kids five states away or across the country. No, it's not. They can, it's not that they can read. It's that they like reading and they choose to read and they want to read and they want to gain knowledge and, and talk about things. Right. And I think there are ways we can do that. But it requires such a shift in our society and our thinking that, you know, the rigidness of our systems, the way everything is so bureaucratized, like bureaucratized, like the way we just have this belief that every learning has to happen the same way, that everyone has to be on that bell curve, like that we have to let go of. And mm -hmm. you know what? Maybe everyone doesn't let go of it. Maybe, but I want the space to do this for those who want to do it. You know, yes. like if I can't push my ID on ID onto mm -hmm. everybody. Some people are like, that's too much. I don't want to do that. I just want to send my kids to school. I want them to learn what everyone's learning. I want them to get their degree and I want them to, okay, that's fine. That's your choice. If that's what you want, power to you. But for the rest of us who want something else, we should be able to get that from our public school system. We shouldn't have to go to private schools or independent schools to get that type of experience. We should offer that up to anybody who wants it. And so that's the future I hope for, where kids can have this really kind of just engaged learning experience that puts them in this in the seat. So we talk about child-led and child-driven, right? Yeah. Children drive the curriculum. They decide what they're learning, when and how. And But yes, there are parameters within that that they have to meet. I think if we gave children that task, they would excel so easily. Like if we said, this is what you got to show us, they'll take it and they'll do it, right? Mm -hmm. They're very capable of doing that if we let them. And so 
what would it mean to do that for a large group? And and what would it look like? And how different might their lives be if that's the kind of education they receive, not just for a few years in early childhood. We see this in some spaces, right, where they get this type of project-based, play-based, and that's great. But then they go into these traditional public schools and all that is left aside for the young years. What if we took that all the way through? What if we allowed that to filter through till they're seniors and they're ready to graduate? And even in college, right? Yes. Sarah Lawrence as an institution has this undergrad program where you don't, there's no curriculum in a sense where everyone's taking intro to biology, English 101. You take the courses you want to take that interest you by the, and the professors teach courses that they want to teach that are based on their research. It's right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there are requirements. You can't only take 120 credits of film. You can take a lot of film, but you yeah. got to take things in other areas. But mm-hmm. you don't have to take intro to biology. If you don't want to take biology, you don't have to. Right. But there isn't an intro to biology course. There might be a course on emotions and feelings that one person's teaching. There might be a course on, you know, nutritional, you know, issues in the sub-Saharan Africa that someone else is teaching and how that impacts your body, right? It yes. just, and that's okay because you're getting an interdisciplinary liberal arts degree. So you can really decide what you want to study. And they're taking these courses for five credits, which means they're doing the regular work and an additional project with the professor that they design and they carry out within a semester. Who takes on that much work than someone who's really committed to learning? And it's beautiful. You know, why can't we have that all the way throughout? Why do you have to go to an expensive private college to get that education? Why can't you be doing that nine through 12 or seven or eight or in sixth grade and fifth grade? (laughs) So it's taking these ideas that are out there, but moving them to a space that they're not just limited to private preschools and private liberal arts colleges, but that they are the norm or an optional norm for kids everywhere, right? If that's the kind of education that kids want, why can't they get it? Why can't they have it? So yeah, it's a big future. I don't, I dream about it. I hope to even do it on a small scale in one little community. I keep inviting any principal who wants me to come out and help you uh, revamp your school under a research study for three years. We can do this. We can do that. That's my plug. I always give the, yeah, I always give the plug. And one day some principal is going to say, I heard you on that Conscious Pathways podcast. And you know what? Let's do it. Let's do it. Three years. What can, what can we do? I'm like, let's do it. Let's make it happen. There, who knows what we can do in three years, but we gonna find out. Exactly. <laughs> I support it. I'm here for it. I want to see the <laughs> tag me along. I'll, I'll assist in however way. I'll be an assistant. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Like we so many people I know, and then it's like we all want to. We can't just all live in the same place, so we can run the same dream school yes. in the same area, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I I always love asking that question because it does. It, everyone answers it so differently, and there's all these different ideas that come in and. I, I love that because, you know, when we're in education, it's just we're here because we love it and we're here because we see the potential of what education can and should be. And we, we stay with it because we know that it can get there and we know that it can be it can be the best thing. Like we know education is so important and we believe in this act of education. We believe in in the future of these students and these children and these young people. And we keep advocating and we keep doing it and we keep thinking about the future of education and reimagining it for what we know it can be. And then there's that Michelle Obama quote where it's, do we, you know, do we want to, you know, teach the world for how it is, or do we want to kind of change the world for how it could be or what the future is going to be? And it's like, yeah, that's it. (laughs) I don't want to accept things where they are right now. 
I want it to be the best it can be. And that's why we keep sitting here. We keep challenging it. We keep trying to move the needle um, because it's amazing and it's worth it. And those students are worth it and they deserve it. All of that. Um, before I let you go, is there anything that you're working on? Any social media that you want to share uh, with our audience or where can they, you know, find what you're working on? Yeah, for sure. Um, so defending the early years, our website is www.dey.org. Um, you can definitely check it out. We have a campaign right now on um, linking, uh, re restoring the link between child development and high quality and kind of pushing back. I get emails all the time. Early childhood people will be like, why are people asking me to do this? This is not OK for young children. Like children can't sit for 55 minutes and write a paragraph and they're five. Right. It's just a lot of nut stuff. So we're trying to like. Uh, outline what we know based on child development principles and kind of rethink quality away from this bureaucratic types of quality that looks at regulations and manuals and, you know, and doesn't get into like relationships and whole child development. Like how can we get it back? Like high quality as defined through child development. Um, so we have a statement. We're looking for folks to sign on. We'll be doing more on that. Um, we're also pushing back against all of the censorship. We have our band book club. We just had a feature from Matt Damon. He shared, um, about a brilliant book uh, called Radiant Child that's about John Michael Besky that's been um, banned for a lot of kids. And so he, he pugged that, which is lovely. Um, so please check out the banned book club feature. Uh, we do webinars. We're doing book studies. We're trying to launch a professional learning institute mm -hmm. where we're trying to bring all of this knowledge and these ideas to the educators in a way that will help them, right, to, to help them do their job, stay committed, to, to be that lifeline when they're like, no one thinks like I do. Yes, we do. We think like you do. Come join us at Defending the Early years sign up for our newsletter um and sign up for any of our webinars because we're trying to get them all funded so we can do them mm -hmm. at really low cost for the participants but to pay the people who are giving them mm -hmm. good money so that they can make a living and doing this amazing work um, we have our summer institute that'll happen in june so check that out as well. Um, and then, yeah, I'm working personally on a book. I, I hopefully it'll be, you know, Haymarket's interested in my next book idea. It's on early childhood liberatory pedagogy. So I have to just submit them the proposal. And that's my goal for winter break. <laughs> I'm still on a college schedule, even though I don't teach in the college anymore. I'm like, winter break, what am I doing on these next three weeks? Like so much to do. Um, so I'm hoping to get that proposal out to them. And then I can say that I'm under contract with Haymarket to get another book out, hopefully by the end of next year. And yeah, it's just, there's a lot, but it'll all be shared through Defending the Early Years. They, they're great at promoting all the work that I'm doing. Um, and so that's the best place to reach out and just stay connected. We're, we're trying to launch regional working groups, childhood defender groups, where um, we can work together to think about um, these issues, think about the campaign, how can they advocate locally and how can we support them? Because we're a national organization, but we know that a lot of this has to happen. Local state politics, local uh, city politics. And so we want to be the people who support them um, and help them get them the information that they need so definitely check us out and thank you so much for this opportunity to just speak and be heard um and it's always so great talking to like-minded people who get it and don't look at me like well that doesn't make any sense and i'm like sure it does sure it does <laughs> i've been on the other side i feel you i get it and i'm like no don't look at me like i'm insane i promise <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just try it out i promise um thank you yeah. so much nisha for for joining me i feel like I'm back in my college days, like just learning and growing. I just feel like my little third eye is just like wide open right now. Like <laughs> it is just living its best life. Um, but thank you so much. And I, yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to Conscious Pathways wherever you find your podcast.
And don't forget to like or leave a rating or review. It really does help the podcast to grow and find more listeners just like you. And until next time, wherever you are in your conscious journey, don't forget to lead with kindness and compassion. Until then, I'll see you next time for more transformative conversations in education. Bye!